Okay, so Anchita has asked me to interview you for the position of Director of International Medical Graduates for Australia yeah. for APAS. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself to begin with? Yeah, I mean, as you can tell, I'm Canadian. I have I have an accent in this country, at least. No, so I was uh, born in Canada. I trained as a nurse in Canada first, worked for a few years, got bored, and decided to go to med school. I did medical school in the U.S. Um, and met my wife, actually, while I was just before med school. And my wife's Australian. So I looked at the rules according to how the government worked over here and, and thought that it would be really simple to transfer my medical license from America to Australia. Because, you know, you just have to pop over and fill out some paperwork, basically, according to their website. So we, uh, I finished med school and came over. And that was when I got stuck into the quagmire of the Australian medical system, being an international medical graduate. But yeah, I finally made it through, finished, fellowed earlier this year. Well, late last year, technically. Uh, congratulations. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. So got my, so fellow of the rural, the College of Rural Remote Medicine, because I love, I like country, small hospital kind of stuff. I like doing a little bit of everything. I didn't want to, I didn't want to do one thing for the rest of my life. So yeah. And um, you would have come across all of the, the hurdles, I suppose, of being accredited from, uh, as an overseas medical graduate. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, my every aspect of medical training that I've gone through in this country has been harder because I'm a foreigner, because I was an IMG. So I, I got my, hilariously, I got my citizenship email that, that I've been granted citizenship a week after I got the email saying I was a fellow. If I had had that email four years ago saying I was a, a citizen, it would have been cruisy. You know? <laughs> so, yeah, you're more qualified I, uh, to. Yeah, oh, I, would, I would have been. Qualified. It would have probably taken an entire year off of my training. Looking back, if I was a citizen at the start, like when I was an intern, if I had been a citizen to start with, but yeah, every every aspect of my training has been complicated by the fact that I'm a I'm a foreigner. And that's just a blanket. That's how you're viewed. It doesn't matter where you trained. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter that you're, you know, you speak English really well. It doesn't, doesn't matter in the government's view and in, in opera's view, in the AMC's view, in Akram's view, I was a foreigner, you know? Right. And what are your thoughts on that? Do you think it's a, it's an unfair system? I don't think it's fair, but I do understand that there has to be some checks and balances in you know making sure that people coming from other places who have been trained in other places have the same credentials but the once the credentialing process finishes and once i had my opera license that said i was a doctor everything after that is making it unfair everything where i couldn't apply to be in the akram training program unless i paid a fee because i was a foreigner I couldn't do internship in a Queensland health facility because it would have required someone to fill out extra paperwork that they weren't willing to do because I was a foreigner. I had to pay a higher fellowship training cost. Just like on top of paying a fee, I had a higher fellowship training cost because I was a foreigner. Now, none, like, there was nothing that they did differently. I was just another person, but they penalize you for being a foreigner. And I think that... I agree with some of the AMC stuff. I think that the AMC exams and the AMC clinical exam is used 
to slow the entry of international graduates. They make it harder and easier depending on they pass more people or pass less people every year, depending on how many foreign doctors they want to allow into the country. And I'm, I'm very convinced about that. And there's, there's actual data to back it up. But after you have your credentials, after Opera has agreed that you are an equivalently trained doctor to an Australian, there shouldn't be the limitations placed on international graduates. There just shouldn't, especially international graduates who are now citizens. Like there are tons of doctors out there who, because of the limitations, are not working in their specialty and are not working where they could. And it's a loss to the system. So, yeah, yeah I couldn't agree more. Um, prior to what I'm doing now, I used to be operations manager for a small GP corporate, and we had a, a hell of a time bringing much needed doctors over to places like Canberra. Canberra, it's good for private build general practice, but terrible for bulk build. And there's a, there's a huge need in the area for it. And um, we were trying to bring doctors across and we came across, I guess, similar hurdles to yeah. what you were talking about in getting the proper accreditation, finding the pathways. Did you have to do a pathway? So, no, I, because the visa that I had was a spouse visa. So we actually, my wife and I, when we, when I first came over here, we looked at the best visa pathways to take. And it turned out that the spouse visa helped you because it gave you an equivalent of a, it didn't make you have to do the rural stuff. I mean, it was it's kind of funny because now I actually work in rural areas and I wanted to do rural medicine, but it didn't force you to work in rural areas. So that was one less hurdle to follow, but it also provided me with access to some of the training pathways that citizens get access to right off the bat. I had numerous friends who were doing sort of trained entry visas and because of their visa, they they have to work in rural areas for a certain amount of time. They have to do this. They have to do this. They weren't allowed to do certain things. And then on top of that, you're the bottom rung on the ladder of people selected to do jobs. And that, and that's just how the intern selection works in this country. It's like number, like it's one to six on a listing. And number one is a citizen asking for an internship in the state that they did their training in. A citizen who did the training in Australia asking for an internship in the state they did their training. So someone who was born in Brisbane, went to school at UQ, and then wants to work at the PA. That's the number one selected person for that job. Doesn't matter if they're as good as someone else. It's they are, they have a precedence. And then it sort of goes down and it's, you know, people who did training out of state, people who did med school. So the Australian citizens who did med school in another country, but have now come back to the state that they live in, they would have precedence over you. And then at the bottom rung of the ladder is someone who's born in another country, who did medical school in another country, who just wants to be an intern somewhere. And that's the absolute bottom of the ladder. So if there's 31 people applying for 30 positions and you're the 31st person, it doesn't matter how good you are, you're not getting the job. If there was something about the process that you could change, well, let, let's say three things about the whole process, what do you think they would be? I think that there needs to be a recognition from the colleges of the lost opportunities that they have to assist 
international trained graduates. The College of Anesthesiologists, uh, the College of Surgeons is another good example. The College of Physicians basically don't recognize the skills that you obtain if you are a surgeon or an anesthesiologist or a physician in another country. They make you start from scratch, assuming you can get into the program. They make you start from scratch and do all of their college requirements again. So that's, you know, that could be someone who is a, you know, has been a physician for 10 years in the US, who went to a, you know, American medical school, comes over here, they won't be recognized as a physician. You know, the, the hurdles that they'd have to jump through basically make it impossible to be recognized as a physician. And they would make them do their basic physician training again, starting as a med reg, and then they'd have to go through the whole advanced training, you know, starting from scratch. And I think that that's a big lost opportunity and that's something that needs to get changed. And I'm hoping that actually in the position that I have now and with a bit of background and a bit of clout, I can at least bring the topic up. I think that they need to rethink the carrot and stick approach to rural medicine. Forcing doctors to work in rural areas doesn't work. And it, it, it's never worked. You know, you have to take people who want to work in rural places and let them go there. Using a stick and telling every single IMG that you, when you come over here, you have to go work in a small town just doesn't work. You know, you end up with angry people working in small towns, or you end up with people trying to just figure out a way to get out of it, which happens a lot. You know, whereas people like me who wanted to work in small towns, if they had made it easier for me to work there, would have been good. So I think that that, that approach needs to get looked at. And I think intern selection, like right from the start, intern selection needs to be merit-based. We should be able to take an intern from the US, an intern from you know, India, an intern from Canada, an intern from England, and an intern from Sweden, and an Australian intern, and assuming that they all have the same credentials, which is the AMC certificate, you know, well, not the Australian ones, but all of those people from other countries, if they have that AMC certificate, all of them should be looked at on the same merit basis. And if one of those people is better than the Australian graduate, they should get the job. And creating a competition atmosphere in Australian medical schools would not be a bad thing. So sort of the three things that I'd really like to change. And I think there's... I'd really like to also just in general be a proponent of the fact that IMGs prop up our workforce in this country. Like if it wasn't for IMGs, there are not enough doctors at all. You know, we import doctors to this country in the hopes that they fill the gaps. And then we make it impossible for them to fill some of the gaps that need filling. And then we complain and cry that we don't have enough doctors. Like it's just, it's this mind-blowing conundrum that international graduates have all the time and it's not just doctors you know like i obviously i see it from a medical perspective but when i first came over here because i had to go through the amc process i wasn't aware that i was going to have to go through the amc process they actually changed the rules that the usmle's didn't equivalent to amc anymore i had i had to maintain my nurse's license so i had to transfer my nurse's license over here so that i could work i needed to work in australia for a year and a half while i was going through the amc process you know and luckily enough i was an rn already so i could maintain that license and transferring my nurse's license was a hassle and it ended up being easier to work for a nursing locum agency than it was to try to get a government job you know we lived in darwin and I didn't work for Northern Territory Health. I worked for a locum agency because the locum agency hired me and Northern Territory Health 
wasn't going to because I was a foreigner. I ended up working in the Darwin Hospital as a locum nurse. Yeah, um, right. Yeah, you know, it does seem uh, seem a bit like a broken system. You know, there's, there's all uh, obviously all of these gaps that need to be filled, and there are people to fill them. They're just not being filled because of the, yeah. the bureaucracy in the way. Is that a, a fair assessment? Yeah, it's it's there is a there's a level of bureaucracy that's gotten in place where there's still the protectionist attitude that foreigners aren't as good as Australian trained doctors. And it doesn't matter how good the Australian trained doctor or how good the foreigner is, that mentality that it doesn't matter. The Australian is always going to be the better trained doctor. And that's just, it's its unfortunately, it's hit a level of being pervasive once you get to a certain, a certain bureaucratic point where the decisions are actually made. And uh, what do you see as your biggest hurdles in trying to push change? <laughs> I think having like the, the, the hardest thing to change is people's attitudes toward foreign doctors. It doesn't take a lot when you go into a meeting with a college or when you go into a meeting with a board to have somebody tell a story about how they had this doctor from somewhere who didn't understand English and was rude and was this and was that and couldn't do the job and didn't want to be there. And, you, you know, th those stories are online. Those stories are on Facebook. Those stories are at every party that you go to. But you never seem to hear a story about a bad Australian doctor. And I think that that just shows the basic problem that we just view foreign doctors differently in this country. And that needs to change. That needs to be, you know, the recognition. And the, that's going to be the biggest hurdle is this, this recognition that just because I was trained in another country doesn't mean I'm worse at the job, you know, and it's... I doubt that I'll be able to affect visas. I doubt that I'll be able to affect, you know, that level of change and bringing more doctors. I mean, there's, there are visas available for doctors that want to come over here, but we then force them to do the AMC exam and you can't get a spot to sit the AMC exam for months. And then even if you finish the AMC exam, we don't let you practice. And all of that stems back to, we just have an inherent belief in this country that foreign trained doctors are worse. And what do you plan to achieve in the role as director for IMGs in Australia? I want to try to give IMGs a voice. You know, international, like it's it's kind of it's kind of awkward because international medical graduates, I'm actually, you know, although I'm I am a doctor, I want to be a voice for all of the international trained health professionals, you know, internationally trained nurses, internationally trained OTs, internationally trained PTs, internationally trained doctors, you know, everything. And I think that we need that voice to start pointing out the problems that we face that Australians don't. And growing that realization from your peers will help in the end. And I, I think that I can really be a big voice in that. And, you know, having access to the APAS network and having access to the people that we're trying to get on board and we have on board, I can really spread that knowledge and health professionals are educated. We're a highly educated group of people. And we're very much the type of people who can use logic. And if you tell people a story, if you tell people the truth about what we put internationally trained graduates through, they realize that it's not fair. And they know that, but it's getting that word out of there. It's telling people and getting them to realize that 
it's not fair. Do your Australian trained counterparts agree that the system is not fair? Just out of interest. Um, ones that, I, I mean, yeah, ones that when you really sit down and talk to them about it and they see what I had to go through to become the same level of doctor that they are. You know, like if you're, if I'm talking to a, you know, highly skilled cardiothoracic surgeon who, you know, I can't talk to him about that. But when I chat with other people in the College of Rural and Remote Medicine who, you know, were born in Queensland and went to university in Queensland, and I tell them what I had to go through to get to the exact same point that they are, they're astounded. And they agree that it's not fair. And I think some of them actually come away from it being a little bit thankful that they were born in this country. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any questions for me? No, I mean, I'm just, I'm really interested in working with the group and I'm I'm sort of just feeling it out right now to, it's actually funny. I've, I've had to, I've realized that my, my social profile has been not well updated for a few years. So I'm trying to work on LinkedIn and work on getting myself back up there and looking good and, and I'm really interested to see what how I can help out with APAS and what I can do with them. So. Right. Are you aware of the the structure and the the people that are on board currently, and maybe some future directions of? The- I mean, I know I know some of them. I know that we have we're working on getting a new CEO, and we have a couple of good directors right now. You know, I know that there's a few meetings going ahead in the near future, kind of thing. I'm not quite sure what the end plans are yet like how people are really viewing it but i think that's also because not not everyone hasn't really sat down and ironed out some of that stuff yet which is fine you know it's still relatively new so (laughs) yeah and uh i I guess the ultimate aim is to to have a group of people with clout in the industry who are able to affect change through the proper channels Really, it's what the the AMA was formed to do, but that that's m- mostly for GPs. Yeah, and it's interesting because I used to be quite involved with the AMA. I was part of their um, like I, I used to be a member. I used to, actually I was the uh, doctors in training rural lead for two years with the AMA, and I was on the doctors in training like the AMA Queensland doctors in training board for. I think two years before that kind of thing. I did it right up to about halfway through my registrar terms. And I went to a national conference paid for by the AMA. It's a full disclaimer. They invited me to the national conference and paid for me to go. Um, it was in Brisbane, to be fair. I lived in, I lived in Ipswich and it was in Brisbane. So, And I, um, I went to one of their big meetings and sat up on the stage were eight white old men who were the board. And that was the head of the AMA in front of me. I'm like, okay. It's a little interesting, but okay. And then they started talking about AMA's opinion and the process that the AMA should take to limit the number of foreign trained GPs coming into the country. And that was actually like that was being debated as a good idea and how that should be done most effectively. And that was the last AMA meeting I ever went to because I just, I couldn't believe that a group of people could sit in a room in the current healthcare crisis, GP crisis, training, lack of doctor, everything, everything that was known and debate stopping people from coming into the country and be for it and be, and be willing to do it. You know, they wanted to stop GPs from entering the country. They wanted to make it harder to be a GP and I just couldn't believe it. So I, I stopped going to the AMA and I'm kind of hoping that APAS 
is just becomes a better version of what the AMA should have been in the first place kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know. Why were they debating that? I suppose um, they wanted to protect Australian jobs or something. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. It was, it was the idea that they, you know, they were, I think somebody even used the words, we were flooding the market with foreign GPs. And it was that inherent, they're not as good as we are. They're worse trained than we are. They're going to just take our jobs. You know, like it was this, a whole bunch of people who just didn't want to think about how having foreign trained doctors could help them. They only saw them as a threat to their existence. And, you know, in hindsight, I mean, I was a junior doctor at that point and I should have stood up and said something, basically just gone like, hold on a second here. I'm a foreigner. Like you do realize that I'm a foreigner. <laughs> and I can guarantee you that I could flood this market with foreign doctors and you guys would still have full books. Like it would, you know, if it takes six months to see you now, the only thing that would be different is that it would only take three months to see you. You know, if I like, it's, it's yeah, there's plenty to go around, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there the population growth in this country is happening a lot faster than the number of GPs being trained in this country. And you know, it's it's every time you see a a notification from federal government or state governments about health, the first thing is go talk to your GP. And they always say that, you know, is this right for you? Go talk to your GP. Do you need to get a checkup? Go talk to your GP. Do you have COVID? Go talk to your GP. Well, you couldn't get a GP. There were no GPs. And the only person left was the emergency room. And the emergency rooms had nine hour waits. Yeah. You know, you know, I I, I worked, like I used to work in a small town called Kingaroy and, and you know, they were famous for their peanuts and, and a, a piggery. And there were six GPs in town. And the earliest appointment you could get was about two months in the future for GPs, which meant that the emergency room at the hospital was constantly seeing GP patients. You know, Monday morning, it used to be a joke amongst the junior doctors because we, we were very lucky in Kingaroy. We had junior doctors overnight. We had interns and junior house officers throughout the day helping out the senior doctors. It was never sort of, you know, one doctor at a time working kind of stuff. And it used to be a joke amongst the junior doctors that Monday morning was medical certificate time because all the people who couldn't see their GPs who had been sick or were sick on Monday morning who right. needed a medical certificate for work so that they didn't have to go into work and cough and sneeze on everybody couldn't go to their GP. So they came to the hospital. Right. You'd, you know, and you'd just see a whole bunch of people that were obviously sick and some of them would actually, you know, have pneumonias and stuff like that, need antibiotics and worked up. And some of them had just had a very long weekend of staying awake with a baby or something like that and were too tired to go to work and they just needed a medical certificate. But we were, we, you know, the, the ED has to pick up where the GPs can't keep up. And there's not, you know, you can't blame people for going to emergency rooms. They don't have another option. Yeah. I've never, you know, like it, it's hard sometimes when you're on your you know, 20th patient of the day who probably doesn't have to be in an emergency room, but you know what? It's an emergency to them and it's not their fault that they couldn't get a GP appointment. And the only place that they have to turn is the local emergency room. So we treated everybody who came through the door. You know, we didn't turn anyone away. Yeah, you have a duty of care. That. Yeah, and it's it's not just that you know, like I mean, I have a, I have a duty of care officially per opera and my medical regulation licenses. But I, you know, when you're in a small town, and you know, like I know that we have a we have a board member for rural medicine as well. But you know, I'm I'm a rural doctor, so that's sort of near and dear to my heart. On top of being an IMG, you have 
the best interests of the people at heart. You know, like you want, you need, you know that everyone needs a doctor. You know that everyone needs care. So you have to treat them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like there's the duty of care that people need treatment, but there's also the duty of care that if you can't get in to see your GP for two months and you have a sick child, sometimes you just need to take that sick child to the emergency room to have a doctor look at them, tell you it's going to be okay, and send you home with some Panadol. Yeah. And that's fine. That, you know, if that person is a new new parent and has never dealt with that before, the worst thing that happened, you know, I'm, I've, I, I have twin two-year-old girls and I have definitely spent a few times even wondering myself if I should bring them to the emergency room because I can't go see a GP and I don't want to be their doctor. But at the same time, it's like, you're kind of sick. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, like, what do I do? And, and, you know, and I have the ability to call up a friend who's a GP to get an appointment a bit faster. We are a very, very small percentage of the population who can have a friend who's a GP who's willing to see them the next morning. Yeah. And I know that we're very privileged in our positions as well. You know, like we are, we've been handed a Medicare system that has some issues, but works pretty well. And it's our job to make it work. And it's our job to make it better. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, thank you very much for that. No worries. It was a real pleasure meeting you. I look forward to working with you in the future. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm actually looking forward to our first like real board meetings and stuff like that so we can get together and really see what's going on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>